Please remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, and we'll be looking at the whole chapter today, although it's a, it's a short one. It's been a few weeks since we were in Genesis, so we're picking back up. If you remember, they were down in Egypt previously, and so that's where we pick up in verse 1, Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram also, had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever." I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, now would you use it to speak to us, to teach us and instruct us. But more than anything, would you use your written word to lift our eyes up to see in glory the word, Jesus Christ. Would you magnify Jesus before us today that we can see him and worship him and adore him for who he is and what he has done for us. Lord, work among us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned, we left Abram and Sarai in Egypt. They had had what we might consider a bad experience after facing the famine, the severe famine that struck the land that they were in. Abram took his wife and family down. There's no indication that he sought the Lord's counsel, that he sought the direction from the Lord in which way he should go. He really took matters into his own hands, and he uh, really put at risk not only himself, but his wife in particular, uh, by lying to the Pharaoh about who she was. 
Abram was not walking by faith. He was walking by sight. He surmised the situation and determined in his own wisdom what the best course of action would be, and it didn't go well. But God was merciful toward him, and he delivered him. You might get a sense, however, that his departure from Egypt was almost like a dog with his tail tucked between its legs, that there was this shame and despondency, because if you remember at the end of the story, the Pharaoh comes and lectures him and asks him these questions that seem rhetorical because Abram doesn't have an answer for him. You can imagine the shame that he must have felt following that sin of failing to trust God and lying. He had nothing to say in his defense. But thankfully, God is full of mercy and love and forgiveness. He is a God of fresh starts. He's the God of new mornings. He's the God of clean slates. And while Abram could have returned and just given up, whatever this is, I've blown it, I've done it, I can't go on, he does not beat himself up or resign in failure. He returns in worship. He comes back to the place where he first worshiped, to that altar. He comes back in faith to the land that God had promised him and his descendants. And the faith that brought this act, that demonstrated repentance, is going to bear even more fruit. This faith, we know, is a gift of God, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that faith is a gift of God to us. And this gift of God to Abram is going to bear the fruit of generosity, of peacemaking, and even greater faith in the life of Abram. You may remember as we've moved through Genesis how Moses described Enoch and Noah, that they were men who walked with God, or later how he described, or before rather, Noah, how he described Seth and the people of that time that they called upon the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what we see of Abram in these first few verses of chapter 13. In verse 4, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. We've seen a number of contrasts in the book of Genesis. Genesis is very much a book of contrasts, and this is yet another one. A contrast between how Abram handled the famine, the trial of the famine, and now how he's going to handle the mistake, the sin, his own sin, but also the strife that's going to arise between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. It's quite different from how he handled the incident before. There, there was no mention of him going to God. He simply took matters into his own hands. And what happens often when we do that is things go downward, and they did. Now, you might think, well, of course he went downward there. That was a famine. Here he's described as really wealthy with lots of animals and gold. And, you know, please, Lord, curse me with that disease. You know, I'd, I would handle things much better if I had that situation. But Stay tuned and let's see how Abram responds. I think that it's because of his faith that things respond differently because it's actually the wealth that causes the problem. So Abram leaves Egypt. He returns to the land of promise. We see that he's rich with livestock. There's also silver and gold mentioned. Um, this is, there's a little bit of a, a type uh, that we see of, of when the people of God would would leave Egypt uh, under the Exodus, right? We see some, some similarities between what God has done in the life of Abram and, the, and his people when they exited. Even though he had failed miserably, God showed him mercy. He delivered him and he gives him greater wealth. In verse 2, the word for very rich, that modifier very, is the same modifier that's used in chapter 12 to describe the famine. It's translated in, in, in ESV as severe famine. 
But you could say great famine and great wealth here. It's the same word. And what we see is God replaces the great famine with great wealth. And we see, too, that Lot was with him. There's not not a lot said about Lot. He's kind of almost an add-on. You see it twice. Lot was with him. It's at the end. It's kind of tacked on there. And again, in verse um, 5, Moses records, And Lot went with Abram. Abram is described as being very wealthy. It simply says Lot had some you know, herds and tents as well. So there's, there's some contrast even in how they are described. But, but between them, among them, there was great wealth. And this is what sets the stage for the conflict. Now this is hard for us to understand, and it's hard because of the reason why we just snickered a few minutes ago. You know, we, we think, we tend to think that if we just had more money, our problems would go away. This is how we're wired to think, especially in our own culture. We think that it's the lack of money. I mean, you've heard the numbers and and, and so forth. In marriages, what's the number one thing that husbands and wife disagree about or have uh, intense fellowship about? We won't say fight. They have this intense fellowship about money. If there was just more money, it would solve all the problems, wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't. And all you have to do is look to the wealthy to see that their lives are not free from problems either. Or look in your own life as you've maybe increased in wealth or made more money as you've gotten older. It doesn't make your problems go away. It often introduces more problems. All all we have to do is consider not only our own lives or the lives of others, but this case as well. Think about it. If someone gave you your dream house... Someone gave you your dream car, your dream boat, plug in whatever it is that you maybe dream about uh, on a cloudy day. Um, It sounds nice, but what comes with that? I'll tell you what comes with a dream boat. It comes with dream storage and dream maintenance and dream gas and dream insurance. And the same thing comes with the dream house and the dream utilities and all that comes with it. It just creates greater burdens. And there's more to care for and more to consider. Well, this is what happens in the case of all of their wealth that creates this tension between uh, Lot and Abram, particularly between the herdsmen. You know, money can solve problems. It can. There are many problems that money can solve. It can might make life easier. There are times where God provides money and it just smooths things out. It can bring relief. Sometimes there's great pressure and a provision comes in and there's relief from that. But we're warned not to love money because there's a difference from recognizing money for what it is as a tool and what it can be as an idol of our heart. In 1 Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, what a sad story that that's what money can do. And to any of us, any of us can be vulnerable to this. So it's not money itself that's the problem, but the love of money that becomes the problem. And it's in this contrast that we see between Abram and Lot what was really in their hearts. Abram looked with his eyes and trusted God. Lot looked... With his, uh, with his real eyes, his fleshly eyes, he failed to trust God, and he took what seemed good. Do we look in life with our real eyes, or do we have eyes of faith to see? 
If we go back to Abram's experience in Egypt, that was the difference. Instead of looking with eyes of faith at this trial, this famine that he faced, he simply assessed things in a, in a very real fleshly physical sense. My wife's beautiful. They're going to try and steal her. I'll just come up with this lie and that'll make everything better. And of course it doesn't. It makes him miserable and his family as well. And in this story, Lot looks with his own eyes, his fleshly eyes, and he chooses the best land for himself. The love of money is rooted at least in part in a lack of faith. The reason that we love money, and I think this is something that many of us struggle with, and I'm saying we here, this is me, uh, it's because we see it as the solution rather than God. We see money as a solution. Money and security become objects of our affection rather than Jesus because at some heart level, we think they are more powerful to provide real help. Don't we? There are times where we really think that. We're like a frog in the kettle that over time begin to treasure money and security more than Jesus because we ourselves are deceived into thinking. And here's the problem, that this life is all there is and that this is all that matters. When we forget our hope in heaven, we get tripped up into thinking that this is what I've got to sweat about. This is what I've got to worry about. This is what I've got to to, to work hard and and make more because this is all I've got to get and i got to get while the getting's good. And that's a lie. It's wrong. This isn't all that there really is. And Abram really seems to be getting this. You see a transformation where he's beginning to understand that the promised land wasn't all that there was. The promise is the land, and it's reiterated again further down in the text. But Abram wasn't in love with the land or trusting, like thinking like we often do, like if I just had this, this one thing, maybe it's the house, or maybe it's a house with some land, or maybe it's a, a car that doesn't break down, or a job that had better hours or better benefits, or whatever this, this thing is. We think if we just had this, it'd fix everything. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd, be, I'd not ask for anything else. I don't know. At 45 years old, I've done that and thought that so many times, I've realized that it's never going to be true. It's never going to be true. And Abram instead had eyes of faith to see that the promise wasn't about a piece of real estate. I mean, it was, again, it was about the land, and the land was going to be given to his descendants. Even though it was occupied, as verse 7 tells us, by Canaanites and Perizzites. Perizzites. But Abram's eyes of faith were strong enough and clear enough to see, by God's grace, beyond the land. Abram understood, at least at some level at this point, That for the promise of the land to be eternal, it had to be more than just a sliver of land in Palestine. Let me say that again. For this promise to be eternal, it has to be more than just a sliver of land in Palestine. Hebrews 11, we've read this so many times as we've begun to look at Abram, or Abraham as it calls him here after his name was changed. Hebrews 11.10, For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He had his eyes on something better, and that's why he could hold loosely onto this piece of real estate and tell Lot, take whichever piece you want, whichever way you go. 
He could hold on loosely to what was rightfully his because his eyes were on the permanent prize, the the eternal prize. Peter writes, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This earth is going to be destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth are coming. Abram had eyes to see that the promises of God were far greater than a temporary piece of land. You know, we make the same mistakes. There are many Christians today who make the same mistake, not just about wealth, but about health. They they get their eyes off of the eternal reward that we've been promised and start to think that it's something here and now, but we're all going to die. The wages of sin is death. Death is reigning right now over our mortal bodies. Yes, resurrection's coming. That's the next life. This We're all going to die. And so to turn this into something like trying to take what is eternal and permanent in heaven and bringing it into this world gets us tripped up. That's what happened to Lot here. And it's what happens to us when we say things like, well, the reason I'm I'm sick is because I don't have enough faith. Or the reason that you're sick, even worse, is because you don't have enough faith. And that's wrong. Don't do that. The promise for perfect health And perfect wealth and security is not in this life, but in the one to come. So God had providentially provided great wealth for Abram. And unlike the test of famine, though, he's going to demonstrate his growth in grace. Again, it centers on this this problem with the livestock. The herdsmen are fighting. They need more space. They need more room. They also need more grass. They probably need more water. And there were these other people in the land that are mentioned. And Most likely, although the text doesn't tell us this, they were there first, so they were probably controlling the land and the water and the grass. Now, many families over history have split over money, have been broken apart because of wealth, either through an inheritance or newfound wealth or a family business. We've seen uh, this throughout history, that this has happened. And this strife is going to to split this family, but it's going to split it in a way that brings peace to the conflict. And the difference is, again, what I keep saying over and over, the difference between Abram and Lot is one is functioning in faith and the other is functioning in the flesh. In verse 8, we read Abram's words to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. You might be thinking, what in the world is Abram doing? He was the rightful one to receive this. I mean, culturally, he was the elder. Uh, In a familial sense, he was the uncle. And in a spiritual sense, he was the one who received the promise, not Lot. Why does he seem so just free, almost flippant, to let this go, this thing that had been promised? As I read and studied this week, there was this word that kept appearing, magnanimous. That's not a word that I use regularly, and I knew it meant generous, but I really didn't know that there's more to this word until I looked it up. The Oxford Dictionary defines magnanimous as generous or forgiving, especially toward a rival or less powerful person. That's what Abram was doing, and that's why so many scholars use the word magnanimous to describe him in this context. He was showing Lot, a less powerful person, great generosity. 
And so the next question that comes up is, is why? Or, or maybe how? How could he show this generosity? And it goes back again because Abram was looking with eyes of faith. He had been humble, humbled rather by his sinful response in Egypt, and he was now looking to and trusting God. And as he comes back to Bethel, he returns to worship. Instead of taking matters into his own hands, he goes to God in faith. That's how worship helps us. As we gather for worship every week, there is a reorienting that takes place to what is true and what is right. We sing things that remind us of what is true about who God is and who we are. We, we pray together words that reorient us to what is not only true, but what really matters and what has weight. And God's Word takes us and, 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 and shapes us and transforms us as we hear it proclaimed. Worship helps us respond in faith rather than in fear. And so Abram, having been reoriented now, he doesn't need to make a land grab. Again, he can hold on to it loosely. And he can say to Lot, take whichever one you think. And so what does Lot do? Lot does what most of us would do. He takes the best-looking piece of land. He looks with his eyes, he sees what looks green, and he takes that for himself. While Abram trusts in God's promises, knowing that his promises are sure, he's not worried about it, he holds on to what is true that he knows to be true, not what he sees with his eyes. This is the difference of listening to your circumstances and listening to what is true. Sometimes your circumstances can scream in your face that everything's coming off the rails, that everything's ruined or everything's over. You know, it's done. You've ruined it. It's all messed up. You're never going to be able to rebound from this. God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. God is a God who keeps His promises. No one will pluck you from His hand. He will finish what He has begun in you. That is why those promises are so precious and true. It's because when we blow it, it doesn't change the promises. The promises aren't bearing on how we perform. They're bearing on God alone. And so Abram puts his trust in God's promises and rests in these promises, what he knows to be true. Have you ever experienced losing something? I mean, losing something in the sense of a traumatic loss, something that is life-altering, something that fell from your fingers, slipped through your fingers, or even worse, something that someone took from you. Maybe it was a death, or maybe it was financial ruin, or a loss in a career, or just what aging and time take away from every one of us. If you look with your own eyes, your eyes of flesh, then of course you're going to be despondent. Of course you're going to grieve. If that's all you see and all you know, then you will certainly be sad. But if you can see with the eyes of faith that God is still who He is, that He still reigns over all, and that He is still good, then it changes everything. You can respond with hope in the midst of loss. You're able to fix your eyes on the only one who can rectify all that is wrong and see that true deliverance is in His hands alone. And from that, you can respond in faith. Notice Abram's words to Lot, for we are kinsmen, we're brothers. In other words, Abram's saying, what's mine is yours. He's free with it. And by giving it up, Abram makes peace not only with Lot, but with everybody involved. 
It takes the sting out of everything that's going on. Not just with their people, with their herdsmen, but even with the Canaanites and the Perizzites. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is exactly what Abram was doing. He was looking to the interests of others. He was letting go of what he thought was rightfully his and what we would all agree was rightfully his. He let it go. The faith that he had in the Christ to come is the faith that we have in the Christ who has come, who Paul would go on to say, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, it is a call to many things. One is it's a call to suffering. It's also a call to peacemaking, to dying to yourself for the benefit of others. Real faith produces real peace, not just a warm, fuzzy, inward peace inside. We do get that from time to time. We get those feelings. That's not the only peace that real faith produces. It is a demonstrable peace. It's the kind of peace that true wisdom, wisdom that is grounded in faith, Produces. It's what James writes about when he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Abram was proving to be a truly wise man. And then in the final verses of the chapter, the Lord reminds him of the promise. It's like... Abram runs to truth, he runs in worship, and then God reminds him through his word of all that he had promised him. After Lot had separated from him in verse 14, this separation, by the way, was a physical separation. That's what Moses is describing. But we're going to see there's also a spiritual separation that's going on for Lot as well. I've mentioned this. I don't know if I've mentioned it enough for everyone uh, to, to remember it, or maybe I thought I've mentioned it, and none of you remember it because I've never mentioned it, but that happens sometimes in the study process. We've seen uh, a number of occasions already where uh, different characters in the book of Genesis go to the east. It's always a, uh, a movement towards sin. The east kind of represented that. When you notice that Adam and Eve left the garden, it was to the east. And we see that theme repeated. And that comes out here as well, that Lot went to the east. There's something that Moses is indicating here. That there is more than just a physical separation. Lot had begun to be lured away. And if you know how the story goes, we're going to get there uh, in a few weeks. But Lot had begun to be lured away by wealth and prosperity. And it was going to numb him into even greater foolishness that would await him. John Calvin writes, Let us then learn by the example that our eyes are not to be trusted but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unawares with many evils, just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. And so after Lot is away in the greener pastures that he chose, Yahweh tells Abram, lift up your eyes and look. Look north, look south, look east, look west. 
I will give to you all of this land and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if you could count the dust of the earth, your offspring could be counted too. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Again, he's reminded that God's promises are sure. Lot's possession of what appears to the eyes to be better is not going to thwart God's plan. Abram's generosity and letting it go to give to Lot wasn't going to shortchange himself. His future was bright because of who he believed in. Not only was the land going to be given to his offspring, there was something again that's hinted at that's even greater. A possession, a new city, a new Jerusalem that we're looking forward to, of which we will all inherit as sons and daughters of Abraham. And then added to that promise is this expansion of his descendants, that they would be as the dust of the earth. In other words, Abram's being promised here something beyond his wildest imagination. God's saying you can't even comprehend it. And Abram's beginning to understand more and more as he grows in grace, but even he can't understand it all. He's invited to survey, look north, look east, look west, look south. It's it's beyond what you can even see. And in this same region, many, many years later, someone else was invited to survey, to go up to a high point and to look out. Jesus, after 40 days in the wilderness, was tempted by the evil one. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The seed of Abraham, Jesus, withstood the temptation of the devil in our place. Instead of settling for what appeared to be a really good offer, appeared to be greener pastures, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. Our Savior exemplifies what it means to walk in faith and obedience. And in the closing verse of 13, we read, Then Abraham built an altar to the Lord, and again he worshipped. He worshipped the only one who could keep the promise. He worshipped the only one who could hold all of this in his hand, including his future. And every day, you and I have these same opportunities. Are we going to look with our own eyes and live according to our own fleshly wisdom? Or are we going to look with eyes of faith and live according to that faith? All the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Jesus. And so, may we fix our eyes on Him, the author and finisher of our faith, who holds our future and rests in His sure promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see, that we would not... um, Lord, we're tempted. We look at our circumstances. We feel real pain and real suffering. We have real questions, and there are real doubts in this life. And Lord, it is so easy for us to become ensnared by these things and to be led away and think, that life is over, it's not worth living, or there's no hope, or, or we can't fix a problem, or, or, or whatever it is, Lord, would you lift us up out of these lies? 
and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, as, as, as he surveyed the land, saw something greater, obedience to the will of the Father, because of what awaited him in submitting to the Father's will and going to the cross to be the first fruit of the resurrection. And Lord, now we look to Him who is that first fruit. And we long for that resurrection when everything will be made right. Would you cause us to see with those eyes? And then Lord, reorient us again and again and again, fixing our eyes on Jesus, knowing that you hold our lives in your hands and that we can trust you, that you are not only all powerful, but you're all good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.